So good to be with you again. We're going to take a look at a passage uh, today from the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And uh, Revelation uh, is a book, we think, uh, written uh, at the end of the first century. Uh, and it was written by the Apostle John, uh, the same John who has a gospel named after him. Uh, also the author of the epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So during the time uh, that the book of Revelation was written, the church throughout the Roman Empire was under significant persecution by order of the emperor Domitian. Uh, and uh, the Christians uh, in uh, that empire uh, were being persecuted, which resulted in, for many of them, uh, a loss of income, uh, a confiscation of property, and for many it meant death. So that is the culture in which John writes uh, this book. We read in the passage we're going to look at today, the very first verse tells us that these words that I'm going to read are the words that Jesus said to this church in a place called Smyrna. Verse 8 says, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, those are the words of Jesus. So let's read this passage together. We are at Revelation chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by a second death. This is the word of the Lord. So what was this place, Smyrna? Smyrna was a port city on the Aegean Sea. It was about 30 miles south of the town Ephesus in what is now current-day Turkey. Uh, it was a city that competed for prominence with Ephesus. In fact, they had a coin minted in Smyrna that had on it written, first in Asia in beauty and size. So Ephesus was its competition. We're going to look at these timely words for a suffering church and three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, be faithful uh, in your suffering to the very end. Secondly, be encouraged to know that I know that you're suffering. And then last, be fearless in what you will suffer. Can I pray for us? And we'll take a look at this passage together. Father, for your word, we give you thanks. We thank you for the word of God, which is able to instruct. It is like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. It is a light for our paths. It is like a sword that divides between joints and marrow. 
Lord, we are a people that desperately need your word because it is bread to our soul. It gives life to our being. So, Lord, now with this passage, would you help us, Lord, to be attentive to what you have for us? We pray that you would take the anxieties and concerns of last week and the coming week. And now just give us peace. And grant us, Lord, that ability to concentrate on these few verses from the book of Revelation in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to start uh, at the end of the passage because if the end's clearly in view, uh, a person will be able to face the suffering that Jesus writes about for the church in Smyrna. So we're going to just talk about there uh, in verses 10 through 11, be faithful in your suffering to the end. He tells us two things about the end. He tells us, first of all, that if you're faithful, you will not be hurt by the second death. Look at verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what is that? What's the second death? Well, later in Revelation, it describes the second death. This is from chapter 20, and it tells us what the second death is. Let me read this for you. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the first death is our physical death. is a person's body dying. That's the first death. The second death is eternal death. And for those whose names are not written in the book of life, that death will be eternal torment in the lake of fire. That is the second death. So Jesus instructs the church at Smyrna that if you persevere to the end, it's indicative that Christ is your Savior and Lord, that he gives you strength to persevere, and that's indicative to you that you will not suffer the second death. You are forever his. Your name's written in the book of life. So that's what they will not experience. What will they experience? Well, he says in verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So if they're faithful, they will receive the crown of life. They will not receive the second death. So what is this crown of life? Well, this phrase had a lot of meaning to the people in Smyrna uh, because it referred to, in their culture, the wreath that winners and champions in Olympic Games were awarded uh, upon their victory. Uh, Smyrna was a host city for the Olympic Games. So they knew about crowns being conferred upon champions in the Olympic Games. It's also uh, fitting for the people in Smyrna to be told about the crown of life uh, because I mentioned previously of its beauty uh, on the Aegean Sea. Uh, they were uh, a city that had uh, these buildings on the top of a little mountain or hill along the Aegean Sea called Pegas. And the outline of the buildings at the top of the hill reminded the people that came into the port of Smyrna of a crown. Uh, and so it was called the crown of Smyrna. It had that meaning for the people in Smyrna. So Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna that if they persevere, that the crown they will receive is greater than the victory of an Olympic athlete. 
And it is more beautiful than their own city is to those who come into the poor. That's what he's telling them. That's the crown the Lord will give you. So that very crown was Paul's anticipation, the Apostle Paul, as he neared the end of his life, and he tells the people, he tells the church, to expect the same for them. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, the last known letter that Paul wrote before his death. He says this to his son in the faith, Timothy, As for you, endure suffering, for the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. We anticipate that crown of righteousness. We anticipate that because life is a life of suffering. Life is difficult. We may not experience it the people in Smyrna did in their suffering, but in some way, throughout all of life, there is suffering that we all confront, right? It's there. Difficulty, suffering, hardship. Edmund Cloney, a former professor at Westminster Seminary and the author of the commentary in 1 Peter, said this. He says, a life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. He says, to be sure, suffering is a flame to burn away the dross, so that our tested faith may shine as gold. So it would help us to understand that the pain and difficulty of suffering will confront all of us several times throughout our life. It ought not to surprise us. I like the way John Piper, a theologian pastor, who says that God in our suffering is much more like a surgeon than a fireman. He's not a fireman. He doesn't come to our sufferings and say, oh, I'm surprised. Maybe I can do something to help. Let's see what we can do. Instead, he is a surgeon who plans the surgery to protect us and give us life. That's what he does. Over 20 years ago, as I was facing open heart surgery, the surgeon reviewed for me uh, that they would cut me open, that they'd have to cut my ribs from my sternum, they would open that up. They would do the double uh, artery replacement for those damaged arteries in my heart. They would, they would then take my ribs and wire them back to my sternum. Then they would staple that incision up. Uh, but at the end, he did not say. This is what he didn't say. He didn't say, and in your recovery, you will know no pain or discomfort. He didn't say that. Because I would go through that. And so it is for us the same spiritually. We can't find healthiness spiritually unless the surgeon performs surgery several times throughout our lives that we would be healthier, our soul would be in a better place, that we would become more like Christ. God, to us, we need to understand, is more like a surgeon than a fireman. Be faithful in your suffering to the very end. Secondly... Be encouraged to know that I know that you are suffering. I'm sure that for many of us, we've had people in a very timely way call or come to see us or talk to us because they know we're going through a particular difficulty 
or hardship in some way we are suffering. And they in love say a timely word to us. Does that happen to you? When it happens, it means so much. I remember a few years ago, I called someone in the church uh, that I attend, Covenant Presbyterian Church uh, in Nashville, and I knew that they were going through a difficult time. And I just called to say, I'm so sorry. And I think I prayed for them over the phone. A few weeks later, uh, I saw them in church, and they came up very animated and said, thank you, thank you so much for calling me. I didn't need any advice from you or counsel, but it meant so much that you knew that I was suffering. Thank you. What we're being told here, uh, that Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the church in Smyrna is suffering and will suffer. Let me tell you the three things that he knows. First of all, he knows that their suffering comes from tribulation. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation, Jesus writes. So this tribulation is suffering uh, that comes from persecution. So although it's unlikely that we will ever suffer like the saints in Smyrna and throughout the Roman Empire suffered during the late first century, nonetheless we experience suffering in life to some degree. And we are told by Paul we should all expect it. We should expect suffering that comes from persecution. Listen to his words again from 2 Timothy. He writes to Timothy. He says, You, however, have followed my persecutions that I endured. Timothy knew what Paul endured and the sufferings that he had. Then Paul writes this. Listen to him. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Christ followers, we should expect some sort of rejection or criticism about our faith in him. Now, it may be no more severe than a weird look or people walking away from you. Uh, you might be criticized. Uh, you might be marginalized. You might even be ostracized. But there is a reaction to you because of who you follow, and that is not easy. We don't like to be rejected. It oftentimes prevents us from talking to others about Jesus because we fear rejection. It's hard, isn't it? But we should anticipate that rejection, not because of us, but because of him who is in us. So, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. You will experience it. Jesus knows the suffering that comes from tribulation. Secondly, Jesus knows that suffering comes from poverty. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your poverty, parentheses, but you are rich. So, poverty uh, in the scripture uh, can be translated from two Greek words. Uh, one Greek word uh, can have the meaning of having nothing extra. Another Greek word, it means having nothing at all, destitute. This word here in Revelation means having nothing at all, destitute. You are dirt poor. You have nothing. That's what this word is. So he is telling them that although physically and materially you have nothing 
In fact, spiritually, you are extremely rich. You, in Christ, are wealthy. So it's such a temptation, isn't it, in our culture, at least I think it is for me, to translate wealth into non-material value. That if I have wealth, if I have possession, that there's importance tied to that, and there's importance to tie, tied to me as a Christian to what God thinks of me. If I have all these things, then I'm well thought of. Right? We tend to think that a lot. So many Christians in today's culture preach to themselves a man-made gospel that teaches obedience to God yields material and physical blessing. That's a false gospel. Larry Crabb in his book Soul Talk writes this. He says the central point of soul talk is to awaken and nourish the first thing desire until the passion for God becomes consuming. The ruling passion of the soul, the stronger than any other desire, that is spiritual formation. And then he goes on to talk about the difference between spiritual formation and religion formation. He says this, God has not promised us a better life of blessings in this world. Is that news to you? God has not promised a better life of blessings in this world. Blessing may come to faithful people. They may not come to faithful people. Rain falls in the godly and the ungodly. So does hail. There is no linear relationship between getting it reasonably right and having life go reasonably well. That's the lie of religion. God has become our tool, the preferred means to our narcissistic goal, which opens the possibility that if at some point we judge that he's not producing, we might choose a different path. We need to be careful of that false gospel, don't we? Because God sees us as in Christ rich. We are wealthy beyond measure in Christ. So Jesus knows the suffering that comes from tribulation. He knows the suffering that comes from poverty. And he knows the suffering that comes from slander. Look at verse 9. He says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Slander means evil speaking. And the Jews in that city, Smyrna, were saying torturous and injurious things about the church. And even playing the role of Satan by giving the church members up, giving the Christians up to the governing authorities. Remember what we said before? They could cost them their poverty. They could be exiled and even killed. That's what the Jews were doing to the saints in Smyrna. They were being slandered. But notice, as you think about all these things, that when Jesus communicates, he knows our suffering. That comes from tribulation, poverty, slander. That his words flow from a heart, not just of sympathy, but of empathy. He not only knows our suffering, he feels our suffering. Oh, what do you mean? Well, because Jesus has suffered more than they. He's been through that. I know what that's like, he is saying. 
I feel for you. I don't just know it. I have a passion and a love and a mercy toward you. I know you feel it. So we know that that's true because he talks of himself here in this passage in the very first verse that I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. Peter writes in his uh, epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, that when we experience fiery trials in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't shock us. In fact, he says, when we have those fiery trials, we share in Christ's sufferings. We are sharing in his own sufferings. Listen to 1 Peter 4. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Though we should expect surgeries throughout our life. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love what John Walker writes in his book called Costly Grace, uh, that he talks about the sufferings of the Christian are meant to acquaint us with Christ's sufferings. Now this is really good. Listen to what he says. He says, when Jesus says... We must bear our cross daily. He means we must bear the sins of others. The things that they do that cost us. Just as he bore our sins. This is how God brings out the life of Christ planted in us by the Holy Spirit. Enabling us to take the deep regrets and loss in our lives. Those past and present and view them as God's way of acquainting us with the grief, heartache, and sorrow Jesus experienced on his way to the cross. Don't be surprised. Remember, you are to share in Christ's sufferings. Acquaint yourself with them by what you suffer. They mature us. Be faithful in your suffering to the very end. Be encouraged to know what you are suffering. And then last, be fearless in what you will suffer. He says in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So let's just think a little bit about the devil's plan in suffering. Because his plan and God's plan aren't the same. We understand in John's gospel, now John wrote this, the same John that wrote Revelation. He says and quotes Jesus that taught, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is a life giver. Even in our suffering, he's a life giver. He brings healing by the surgeries that he performs in our lives. But Satan is not that. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. That is his agenda. That's his agenda. But here's the interesting thing. We see in Scripture God using Satan to perform surgery in our lives, just as he's about to do there. So what 
are God's purposes? What is Jesus' purposes in our suffering? Larry Crabb uh, says in his book, Finding God, another book that he wrote, uh, that he says for most of us, suffering is to be avoided like the plague. He writes, We treat personal discomfort as a central evil from which we need to be saved. Isn't that true? Sure, it's true. But here's the amazing thing. God uses sinful and evil means to accomplish glorious purposes. John Piper, to quote him again, uh, was giving a conference presentation, uh, and at the end, it was a question-answer session, and here was one of the questions asked him. The question was, where does the devil fit in as one of God's creations? Here's his answer in part. Listen to what Piper says. He says, Satan fits on the end of a leash. Satan is a lackey. God reigns him in and God lets him out. God uses him as an instrument of sanctification. It's not Satan's intention, but God once uses him to make you holy and humble. Satan is in the business of sanctifying the saints against his will. Think of the most glorious thing that has ever happened to this world came at the hands of an eaten and satanic curse and persecution upon Jesus through Judas. Remember it says when he went to betray him, it says Satan entered his heart. Remember that? And then he goes and betrays him. So you can't have a better example of God letting the rain out to accomplish the most glorious thing, the most wonderful thing, the most beautiful thing he's ever accomplished. He used Satan to do that. Then understand this, that by the phrase, for 10 days you will have tribulation, that we want to understand that this tells us about the suffering Christian's experience. So some have taken this phrase, 10 days, to mean it's not very long. J just 10 days. That's how a lot interpret it. But the number 10 used in Scripture, think about all the number 10s that we find in Scripture, right? The 10 patriarchs, the 10 plagues, the 10 commandments. The use of the word 10 is used a lot in Scripture. And it's used to refer to completeness. It means fullness. So by these 10 days, Jesus is telling the church, the exact amount of suffering you're going to experience, you will experience. It'll be the exact amount. Not less, not more, that amount to accomplish the purposes I have for you. He is Lord. He will control that to accomplish his end in you and in us. That's what he does. Think, if you would, about the tribulations of Job. We read in chapter 1, this story, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and Job suffered fiercely. And if you read Job, he has all these questions about who God is and what God is doing. 
Why did this happen? He asked in many different ways. Did God ever answer his question? No. He never answered Job's question. Never answered. But here's what Job learned. So all the way now to chapter 42, this is what Job learned from his suffering. He says, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. God used his severe suffering to show Job who God is. And his glory was revealed to him. And it humbled him. And it changed his relationship with Jehovah God for the remainder of his life. So God does in our lives with suffering. So all of our tests, all of our trials are to reveal his majesty and his glory to us. That's why they're there. It's through our experiences of suffering that we more deeply experienced him who loved us in Christ. On May 2nd, 1863, the Confederate soldiers mistook Stonewall Jackson for a Union soldier, and they fired upon him. Simultaneously, he was struck with three 57 caliber bullets. One uh, splintered the bone uh, and tended three inches into his arm below the left shoulder. The second tore through his left forearm. And the third entered his right palm, breaking two fingers. The next day, May 3rd, in the early morning hours, 27-year-old surgeon named Hunter McGuire had no choice but to amputate, amputate Jackson's left arm. Later that day, uh, Chaplain uh, Lacey came to pay General Jackson a visit after the amputation. Upon seeing the stump in his arm, uh, chap the chaplain began to weep. Now, General Jackson, a deacon in the Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Virginia, and the Sunday school teacher of slave children, by the way, consoled Chaplain Lacey with these words. Here's what he said. He says to Chaplain Lacey, you find me severely wounded, but not unhappy or depressed. I believe that this has been done according to the will of God. And I acquiesce entirely to his holy will. It may seem strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today. For I am sure that my heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. Timely words for a suffering church. Be faithful in your sufferings to the end. Be encouraged to know that he knows that you're suffering. And be fearless in what you suffer. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are such a fine surgeon. 
You're not a fireman, Lord. You're Lord of the minutia and the magnitudinous in our lives. You're king of everything. The children of God are never victims in your hand. Lord, we don't relish to have pain and suffering, but Lord, that is life. And we know that you desire to use all those things for the good of a relationship with you, that you, my like Job, would open our eyes to see the glorious God that we have never seen so well, except now that we've suffered. So Lord, help us to embrace you in all such adverse circumstances, to be quick to praise you, and to identify with Christ and his sufferings. Lord, thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. You will never fail us or forsake us. You are Lord of everything. We are your bride. We are the church of Jesus Christ. It's in his name. Amen.